you're listening to this episode on the date it comes out, March 31st, it is Equal Pay Day. This date, three months into 2020, symbolizes on average how far into the year women must work to earn what men earned in the previous year. Meaning that just today, we've caught up on average to what men made by the end of 2019. Today's guest, Katika Roy, is going to break this all down for us. She's a gender economist and the CEO and founder of Pipeline, a company that leverages artificial intelligence to identify and drive economic gains through gender equity. They demonstrate the connection between gender parity and economic opportunity and preview. It's huge. She shares what happened when she found out she was being paid less than her male counterparts. She explains the Lilly Ledbetter Act and the implications of the lack of gender equity in newsrooms, the steps we need to take to finally close the gap, and more. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Just to take the listeners at home back, you and I met at the International Women in Media Foundation's Courage in Journalism Awards here in LA. Uh, And you were telling me about this incredible article that you had written for Fast Company, which I then immediately went home and read, titled, There's a Gender Crisis in Media and It's Threatening Our Democracy. And after reading it, I wanted to put a little asterisk and say, and our economy. (laughs) The, The data points that you were able to weave throughout that article to really explain what this stuff looks like, the complexity of how we are or are not represented and paid in media and in so many other arenas was really staggering to me. The The piece talks about the lack of gender equity in newsrooms and obviously then goes into much more of the data that I'm talking about. What what was the impetus for writing this in September of 2019? And and what were some of the most shocking things that you found in researching the piece? Yeah, you know, the impetus, whenever I write an article, I am interested in providing insights to people. So not just data, but data plus insights that makes you maybe think about something differently or have an aha moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I often uh, refer to myself as a data stitcher and a storyteller, right? So those two things together are really important. And one of the things that I had noticed in the news was that female reporters had had a lot to do with the coverage of actually two uh, topics. One was Harvey Weinstein and Me Too, and the other was Jeffrey Epstein, that they were really um, catalysts in the coverage for um, those two stories and to some extent kept them alive when maybe they weren't as... Uh, paid attention to and what a difference that had. And so the female perspective, the lived experience, what impact might that have? So that was the original thought behind the article. And um, whenever I, and because our voices, and as the article talks about, our voices are often not heard and the perspective is not heard. And which means that people tune out, which is, which is what we found when, when I actually did the research. And what are they tuning out to? They're not listening because they don't feel represented. Their voices don't 
um, are not in the newsroom as much. And uh, so, so when I started the hypothesis, whenever I write an article, I have a hypothesis, which is just basically like an idea that I'm testing out to say, okay, what impact do female voices have on the media? So that's where I started with that article. And then I do a bunch of research to figure out, well, what actually is that impact? And what I found was that in actual fact, it has an impact on our democracy because the First Amendment is key to our democracy, right? A free press matters and facts matter. And so in order for us to believe what the media is saying, they need to actually represent us. And you can even just see that in some of the, you know, the Super Bowl, right? In some of the coverage of the halftime show and what women were wearing and what they, you know, what Shakira and J-Lo wore and what the, you know, what people said about that and what they believed about that but didn't say the year before about Adam Levine. I mean, I think those mm-hmm. are those things matter quite a bit. Yeah, I, I was so struck by that. And I thought how interesting that no one ever talks about what the team cheerleaders on the sidelines are wearing, which is often far less than J-Lo or Shakira had on. But those women are part of these male cultures and they fit into them, you know, cheerleading the cheerleaders are hired by the teams. They are they are sort of looked at as this decorative sideline entertainment for men. And J-Lo mm-hmm. and Shakira came out in this incredibly empowered and in-your-face with political messaging and culture. And, and they were really, they were up there for themselves. And it upset a lot of people who mm-hmm. are not upset again, by the women on the sidelines wearing, you know, booty shorts and push-up bras. And I, right. I was so struck by that. Mm-hmm. And to your point, it was a lot of men arguing about this stuff. I, I also can't help but think when, when you talk about representation and how people often will tune out when they don't feel represented – in terms of the examples you gave, the, the Weinstein story, the Epstein story, we've seen institutions, and now we know from the reporting that came out, how many institutions mm-hmm. swept those stories under the rug, protected mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein, protected Jeffrey Epstein, how many men in power ignored what those men were doing. And, and you see how the boys club really threatens the safety of women and girls everywhere. And... Mm-hmm. It is interesting that it takes us having power in newsrooms to really hit hard on those stories, to make sure light is being shined on them, to make sure that there is some sort of retribution. Mm -hmm. And accountability. Yeah. And women being believed the first time. Yeah. That's the other part of it, right? And I would say it's men, but also women have been complicit in the cover-ups as well. I mean, we saw that definitely with Harvey Weinstein. But that, you know, that, that women, the first time they speak up, the one person who speaks up is also believed. That's, that, that also tends to be something that we see is it has to be a collective that speaks up in order for us to believe women. We don't believe women the first time. And if we did, then we might, um, you know, we might actually have a different outcome, right? Just if you think about all the women who didn't have to experience that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, think about the Cosby case, how Mm -hmm. many women had to come forward 
and people still didn't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. I, I I was really surprised by this piece of information to to take it back to the article. You talk about how even though women outnumber men in journalism programs and colleges, they become the minority voice almost immediately after entering the workforce. Uh, mm-hmm. You cited some statistics. On average, women represent 41.7% of newsroom employees. They produce only 37% of reports. Men snag 69% of all newswire bylines published by the Associated Press and Reuters and account for 63% of primetime news anchors or correspondents and write 60% of all online news. But more women are going to journalism school. So how is this happening? And it's actually something that we see happen more broadly in the workforce, which is that women start out in equal numbers or even in higher numbers. I mean, healthcare as an industry is an example of that. And then there's a fall off in their participation. So what happens is that they get to the workforce with the belief that it's equitable and they'll be able to compete on their merits and their qualifications, and they soon find out that that's not actually true. And so oftentimes they'll leave and go. We see a migration happen often, which is that women will tend to migrate to professions or organizations that are more female-dominated with the belief that they'll have better career opportunities, and that's some of what we see. And and so you see that some of the statistics that I talked about in the article, you know, men having the most uh, bylines, they're also the majority of all sources, they're the majority of all uh, chief editors, so they actually, you know, essentially in a newsroom, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but just quite simply, you're doing a pitch, right? You've got a pitch for a story. And at the end of the day, your editor is deciding what stories are going to get covered. Well, if women aren't equitably represented as editors, those stories don't get covered. Mm-hmm. It's. It seems to me, it reminds me of the data that comes out of schools where you find that teachers mm-hmm. call on boys more often. And it's not that girls don't have the answer. and mm-hmm. And it feels like a a sort of morphing of that, which begins at a very young age for us. And then in the newsroom, to your point, if all the editors are men, whether it's conscious or unconscious bias, they're more likely to give the go-ahead to the pitches they're hearing from men than the pitches they're hearing from women. Right. And also because they attribute confidence and competence more often to men than to women. I mean, if you think about the system and the structure and how we think about how people behave and what we value, you know, we assign values to whether or not you have a deeper voice or whether or not you're, when you talk, you're, you um, go up at the end of your, when you're, and you know, so that sounds like a question. We, we, we assign value to that of, of whether or not you're confident and therefore whether or not you know what you're talking about, which is not, it's not actually true when you take gender away. And an example of that would be, for instance, like there have been like blind tests of coders, programmers um, in tech. And what they found is that women are actually better programmers than men, as long as you don't know that they're women. So that that's the, the sort of value that we assign to gender. And then, of course, to bring it back from an economic perspective, women are half of our talent pool, and they're the majority of all of our college graduates. And now they make up the majority of all college graduates in the labor force. And that's a huge economic cost to companies because you're essentially leaving out half of your talent pool. Wow. You also made a point in the piece that 
professional opportunities for female news anchors diminish with age, whereas for male news anchors, their opportunities increase with age. Mm. Why do you think that is and how do we begin to combat that? So the way that we begin to combat that is to have more women over the age of 45 who look over the age of 45 on television, right? So that's that's one. The uh, other piece is, you know, and that we see this, this age uh, happen where women who are over the age of 45 tend to have diminished career opportunities. That's then also true in the newsroom where, you know, men who are over the age of 45, they sort of have graying hair, they look a little bit more distinguished, they look a little bit more authoritative. And that's the, again, the value that we assign to that. So women's voices, and particularly older women's voices, which, by the way, 45 is not that old, I'm 46. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, but it's, but that we, we assign value to that. And then, and then for women, even if they are over a certain age, we expect them to look a certain way. So if you think about how women look on the media, you know, typically like sheath dresses, they don't have gray hair. It also matters that you look older as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't help but think about the internet hubbub after Keanu Reeves and his girlfriend walked a red carpet together and he's 55 and she's 46 Mm -hmm. and and happens to have gray hair and it's beautiful. And people went ballistic about the fact that he was dating someone, quote, age-appropriate, and and that his girlfriend has gray hair, and, and there was all this really intense commentary about it. And I I just, I felt like raising my hand and going, hey, guys, she's still nine years younger than him. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. She's still nearly <laughs> a decade younger than him. What are we talking about? Why does this matter? But, you know, you realize that in a way, out in the landscape of media representation, it's kind of radical to see a woman in her 40s with a mane of silver hair just saying, yeah, this is what my hair looks like. Why do we care about it? It is. That is that is so true because gray hair is definitely a marker for women. And so the bravery to actually have gray hair is, I think, um, pretty brave. You know, just the judgments we make about how old you are and what that, what, how old you are means to how competent you are. Right? Yes. Or, um, or how worthy and, and, you are. Yeah. Worthy you are. Right. It's so interesting. And, and, and I'm really, I'm excited to get into more of the, the nitty gritty and statistics, but I, I, I do like to always start with people at the beginning and I feel like I'm letting the train run away before I get those <laughs> questions, <laughs> those questions asked. Um, so I do want to go back a bit. You, You've talked about how you were so greatly influenced by your parents' journey to freedom. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, how you grew up, where where they came from? Sure. So I'm the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. My mother was born on Guernsey, which is one of the Channel Isles of England. Uh, So it's closer to France than to mainland England. And she was born in January of 1939. And so when France fell to the German forces in 1940, Prime Minister Churchill doubted his ability to defend the Channel Isles, so he evacuated them. And my mom was 18 months at the time, and the first ship off of Guernsey was 5,000 children, and my mom was on that ship. And she was separated from her mother 
and she had uh, four siblings. They were all on the ship and then put into an orphanage and lived in an orphanage and then was adopted a year later. <laughs> That's, yeah. So if, if anyone has seen the Guernsey Potato Peel and Literary Society and they talk about the boy who was taken on the ship, that is what my mom did. She just never came back. That's so she was... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm. I'm just. I mean, you saw my face. My jaw just dropped. I, I can't believe that they took all those kids away from their parents. Why? Why weren't the parents allowed to go with them? Uh, that I don't know. I just know that the decision was that children should go first. That the children needed to get off the island first. Maybe they thought that they were the most vulnerable. I don't think that they. Think about it, you know, in terms of the way they do today, in terms of, you know, of those, that piece, but yeah, and that it would be safest for, to uh, evacuate the children. Wow. Wow. So when she was adopted, what path did her life take? So she was adopted by a, a, a lovely couple. They were actually, you know, very good to her uh, for the most part. They, and I'll tell you what I mean by for the most part. <laughs> But my grandmother, you, my mom had a lazy eye and then she had developed a stutter, obviously from the trauma of being taken away from her family and put into an orphanage. And so they, you know, they took care of her and, and helped her develop, et cetera. But the interesting thing was my mom always wanted to go to Oxford to study the classics. That was her dream. And uh, when she was of that age, my grandfather said to her, this was in the 50s, well, girls don't get an education. Like they don't go to, they don't get a college education. They go to secretary school or nursing school. So my, my mom went to secretary school, which she was very ill suited for. And I think that really was a key part of her, her catalyzed action to actually move to the States. So she wanted to do it when she was 18. And then when she was 21, she was emancipated. So she left and came to the U.S. in 1960. And is that where she met your dad? She met, yeah, she met my dad in Chicago. And so I'm also the daughter uh, and actually sister of refugees. So my father and three eldest sisters escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. And they lived in a refugee. So it's actually very interesting. My mom, we, I just moved her to live with us. So we were going through a lot of old papers and my father is deceased. He, he died 11 years ago. And some of them were, were him writing about that escape. And part of what they, and I didn't know this part, I just learned it a few weeks ago. Part of what they actually had to do when my three eldest sisters were with them is actually cross a minefield to get into Austria. So my sisters were seven, eight, and three at the time. And it was the Austria, it was the border of Austria and Hungary where the Soviet tanks patrolled that border. And uh, as they were, as they were about to cross, the Soviet tank came by and the, my sister talks about this, my oldest sister, how they had to lay in the, um, on the ground to actually hide. They were with some Hungarian freedom fighters to actually hide from the Soviet soldiers. And then, wow. yeah, right. And, and my, my youngest of my three eldest sisters, they had to drug her because she was three and they, she couldn't, they couldn't risk her crying. And then they made it into Austria. They lived in a refugee camp for just under two months. So this is October of uh, 1956. So you cold, snowy, you know, they not bringing anything really with them. And then President Eisenhower, um, who was 
supportive of the Hungarian fight for freedom and democracy, sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956. And they were on that plane. Whoa. That's wild. Sorry, I don't know why. That just like that literally made me burst into tears. Wow. And so the image that I always have, which I normally do cry, so <laughs> the image that I always have is this, because my, my dad was alive, we talk, talked about it a lot, and, and we were very aware of what our history was and our responsibility was because of that. But he talked about how his, and he was 34 at the time when he made that decision, that his decision was that it was better to risk his daughter's lives in pursuit of freedom than to commit their futures to living under communist rule. So when I think about that, I think about the decision that he made going from essentially risking your life and running for your life, crossing a minefield with your daughters, to watching them climb the stairs of Air Force One to freedom. It, it's just... Um, I mean, incredible. And, and, and from that, this, the, President Eisenhower, one person in a position of power, the tremendous impact that he had on my life, on my sister's lives, on my brother, on my family, and the opportunities that we had just because one person who had power spoke up. Mm-hmm. And one person who got to walk through a doorway decided to hold it open behind them. That's right. That's right. Wow. That is one of the more incredible things I've ever heard. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, we actually have a, it was the Air Force One at the time was Columbine, the Columbine Three. And we actually have a picture of my family in front of Air Force One when they arrived in America. Wow. So where, where did they land? What, what is that? What happens when you get on that plane and then where are you going? I mean, with them. To an Air Force base, typically. And so they had, Camp Kilner was the refugee camp, for mostly for the Hungarian refugees. It was in New Jersey. Uh, and so they stayed there. They arrived here on Christmas Day. And there's a really cool excerpt. I don't have it with me, but the New York Times covered it. And they talked about what if, essentially, what if Santa Claus is, you know, not a reindeer with a sleigh, but a plane with a pilot. Mm. Anyway, it was, it, uh, and so they arrived, they were at Camp Kilner in New Jersey for 10 days, and then they took the train to Chicago. They had some family that lived in Chicago. So they got to settle with family. Yeah, and in, in the suburbs of, uh, of Chicago. And did you grow up in Chicago? I didn't. I grew up in California. So two of my siblings were born in Chicago, and then my parents moved out to California uh, and actually land. Well, they landed in Palo Alto for a year and then moved up to Napa Valley before it was really well known. Mm -hmm, so this cool. is sort of in the days when Robert Mondavi was actually starting out. And so they lived in, they actually had a winery up on uh, Mount Veter, which is now part of the Hess Collection. And so they landed there, and that's where I was born, on the winery. On wow. the ranch. We called it the ranch, but on the ranch. That's so cool. What, what was it like to grow up there? What were you into as a kid? So I was there for five years, and then they sold it. And my dad was an entrepreneur, so then he was kind of on to the next thing. But growing up there, I mean, the first five years, I mean, I was riding horses as soon as I could sit up. Um, so there's pictures of me sitting in front of my mom or my dad. And then, and then I graduated to sitting. I had my own horse sitting on the horse, and my dad had the reins. And then eventually I could actually... 
<laughs> ride my own horse myself, which is interesting before I was five. So, and we, you know, we were all part of planting the vineyards. That was very much a family affair in terms of uh, the ranch and cultivating the ranch. And they also ran cattle because there's a, a quicker turn on cattle than there obviously is on wine. So they did that. And then we, he sold it uh, and we, we lived on the other side of Napa. So kind of between Silverado Country Club and Napa Valley Country Club. And I think and in the country and it was interesting. I mean, it was a different way to grow up when we lived on the ranch. My brother used to ride his horse to school. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a school up the road that he rode his horse to. And yeah, I mean, I think it was just a very uh, grounded kind of way to grow up in some ways. Like you're very much like, you know, expected to be part of the family. Yeah. And, and from a young age, I mean, you talk about how, especially with your father, there was a lot of consciousness around what the opportunity to come here meant and, Mm -hmm. and that other people didn't get it With, with your mom and dad both given their incredible stories to, to wind up here. Was that always part of the conversation? Was it something that you talked about when you were a little bit older or, or looking back, do you think that there were always values they were instilling in you guys because of those experiences that they carried? No, they were, yeah, they were always instilling it in in us from the very youngest age. The, you know, first of all, just the opportunity to be an American. My dad was very proud to be an American, as was my mom, but my father in particular. We had a lot of, you know, because they both had to take citizen tests, you know, we had conversations about the electoral college and there were a lot of rigorous political debates in my family. I grew up in a pretty bipartisan family, but also this belief uh, in hard work, in not getting sidelined by what people think of you, by getting back up when things are hard, that that it's when things are hard that you get back up and do something. They didn't have a lot of tolerance for sort of drama or just like, it was like, I think, you know, that, that um, the two things that I often talk about is, one is they taught me never to give up no matter what. And the other was to always do my best. And the always doing my best part taught me to walk through a lot of fear, even today. You know, it's not like I'm absent from fear today. I have it today. <laughs> it's just what I choose to do with it and what, what, how that impacts what I do. And so, and always knowing that what my parents had survived in order for us to have opportunity mm. was really um, very much the values that we had. And just being pretty tough. I mean, even now when you, obviously my dad's deceased, but when you talk to my mom, she's like, you know, you don't leave people in the middle of a battlefield. You get back up. Like that's what you do. It's your responsibility. And I think everything within the, there was a lot of perspective in terms of what they had done and what they had survived that, you know, uh, struggling with finishing a math test or something in high school just didn't quite seem, you know, it's like, as big of a deal, like you could soldier through that. That was fine. And, and so, yeah. That's really beautiful. I just want to give a big round of thanks to all of our sponsors during this time. Obviously things are up in the air and weird and scary and 
So many people are trying to figure out what this means for their work and for their careers. And I'm really grateful that our sponsors are sticking with us right now so we can continue to bring content to you. And I'm so grateful to all of you for listening because this is how we support them and the people who work at their companies. So enjoy. If you guys are like me, you are constantly dehydrated. I don't know what's up. I don't know if I drink too much coffee. I don't know if I just don't drink enough water. But no matter what, I always feel like I'm thirsty. And when I discovered Liquid IV, it changed the game for me. It is an easy, healthy solution for dehydration. One stick in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two to three times faster and more efficiently than water alone. Plus, you're getting the added bonus of vitamin C, B3, B5, B6, and B12. So if you're anything like me and you're dehydrated and just need a hand, try Liquid IV. Trust me, it's my jam, and now I want to make it yours. One of the things I really love about Liquid IV is that they are on a mission to change the world. They've donated more than 2.5 million servings to date to places like Haiti, Uganda, Puerto Rico, and Nepal. They're currently donating to healthcare facilities and food banks in the U.S. And with each purchase you make, Liquid IV donates a serving to someone in need around the world. I love that you can do good and feel good. Some interesting facts. Dehydration occurs daily in three out of four people. And the daily dangers of dehydration include headaches, dizziness, brain fog, muscle fatigue, muscle cramping, and dry skin just to name a few. Plus, proper hydration can boost your immunity. Liquid IV is way healthier than traditional sports drinks. Those are sugary. And Liquid IV uses no artificial flavors or preservatives and has less sugar than an apple. It's non-GMO, it's vegan, it's gluten-free, it's dairy-free, it's soy-free. The ingredients are clean and it's effective because of cellular transport technology. It's an optimal ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium that delivers water and nutrients into your bloodstream. So you, my dear listeners, can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code WIP for work in progress at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order on Liquid IV's website. So go to liquidiv.com, enter the promo code WIP to save 25% liquidiv.com, W-I-P. You guys know that one of our favorite sponsors here at Work in Progress is Third Love. They do bras differently. They believe every woman deserves to feel comfortable and confident every day with the right kind of support. They help her do this. The bras are designed to fit you, not the other way around. They've been designed with measurements from millions of women And the bra styles from 3rd Love are made to fit your life. They have over 80 sizes. And they make bras that you can really believe in. Every bra is backed by their perfect fit promise. You have 60 days to wash it and wear it. And if you don't love it, returns are always free. And 3rd Love will wash any returned bra and donate it to a woman in need. I love that. The first time that I bought a bra from 3rd Love, I'm going to be honest, I thought that the idea of taking a fit quiz online couldn't possibly be accurate. But shocker, it is. They help you find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. And the way that they do that is because over 15 million women have taken the quiz. So it's fun. It takes less than a minute. And because they have all that data about how bras work on our bodies, they can better help us find what we need. They help you identify your breast size and shape and the style that fits your body. These are hands down the most comfortable bras you will ever own. The straps won't slip. They have tagless labels, so no itching. They're lightweight. They have thin memory foam cups that mold to your shape. They're just 
the best, guys. Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash WIP now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash WIP for 15% off today. Happy fitting. When you were little, did you know what you wanted to be? Were, were you always kind of bent toward politics and, and justice and, and data, or was it a different path back then? Well, I mean, when I was little, little, I wanted to be a veterinarian, and then I wanted to be a lawyer. But I, um, I, I think for like math was my favorite subject in in high school for sure. And growing up, I loved math. That was by far my uh, favorite subject. I was always a pretty vocal kid. So I would set my boundaries, you know, pretty strongly when I was a child, which I think to some extent probably made me harder to parent, but better as an adult. (laughs) But I, I didn't, I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and I was a paralegal right out of college and then thought, you know, I'll be a great lawyer, but I'll be completely miserable. So I don't want to do this. So, so I didn't. And then I started learning to program actually. And that, and that because I had a math background, it made a lot of sense to me in terms of logic and how things fit together. And this was, you know, back in 2002. So this is before, you know, before kind of programming as a thing today. And I think, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that, and I, yeah, I mean, that was sort of where I started and I think had the faith that if I did my, worked hard and, you know, always did my best that I'd be okay. I just didn't know where the journey might lead. I think that was the other thing that my parents gave me was this faith in myself and in the belief in the journey that you might not know where it ends up, but if you're willing to jump, the, the ledge will appear. I love that. When when you were at USF, perhaps when you were on this journey thinking you might be a lawyer, you studied political science. I did. With your legal studies emphasis. Do you think that studying political science has continued to influence the work that you do today? Yes, for sure. I mean, I love politics. You know, uh, I... I, I was an intern in D.C. Uh, during college, spent a lot of time up on the Hill, lived there for five years after college. I think that justice coupled with economic impact is really where my passion is because it changes the conversation. You know, when we talk about the economics of gender equity, women are not the charity case. We are it is about economic opportunity and how yes. that impacts everyone, right? Mm-hmm. You know, th- this there's often this idea that um, diversity, well, I don't, you know, they'll say, well, I really do want diversity, but I don't want to have to compromise on qualifications, which is, by the way, yeah, that's right, <laughs> which is a little insulting. So insulting. <laughs> and if you look at uh, women being the majority of all college graduates is even more con- is more insulting, but it's a false narrative that you have to choose between the two, mm-hmm. which is where I believe that social justice plus economic impact matter so much because it's not just in us versus them. It is fundamentally about economic opportunity for everyone. And mm-hmm. you can't hold back a segment of the population and believe and, and and then have positive economic outcomes for everyone from that. There it just doesn't like the math doesn't work. Well, and so and to your point, there is this really odd 
illogical belief that equity, parity is a charity case. And a rising tide lifts all ships. If we're holding down half of the nation, we're holding down our economy, essentially, potentially by half. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's logical and, and it's interesting. I, in some of the work that I get to do, a lot of my learning over the past decade plus has been about the UN's development goals and gender parity is goal five. But if we achieved goal five, we would achieve half of the rest of the goals immediately because gender parity fixes so many other problems. And, you know, you have talked about how closing the gender pay gap could add $512 billion to our GDP. Mm-hmm. This isn't a charity case. This is about everybody doing better. And it's it's so strange to me that it's not something we want to do, that it's something people feel begrudgingly obligated to push for. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't I don't understand that. I think that comes from a couple of places. One is that it comes from this us versus them. It comes from this false belief in the fixed economic pie, if you will, that Mm. the economy is fixed, which it's not. And so if you get, so, I mean, you know, to like simplify it, right. If you get two slices of pie, I'm not going to get any, which is just, it's not true. It's actually that we're constricting that through Mm. not, through not having equity. Mm. And that's, that's the other reason why we look at through the lens of, of the economics of gender equity is that men are also held back from the lack of gender inequity. You know, gender equity, as we view it, is not a synonym for women's rights. Women are half the conversation and men are the other half. And the reason is that men are also held back by gender inequity. We just don't talk about it a lot, right? Yes. So there's a lot of narrative around what it means to be a man in this world about having emotions, about being vulnerable. And we, you talk about boys like boys and sports that's where most boys learn what sport what it means to be a man mm-hmm. and that has a direct tie to their economic opportunity and you know you look at the data and 48% of all working dads would like to stay home with their kids um. well why don't they right it's because of identity who they are like what it means to be a man and isolation who will i talk to and and i we my family's lived this struggle my husband has been home for 12 years with our kids and it is, he's doesn't, he's not going to go to the mom and me groups. He said, I don't, you know, I don't feel comfortable. So it can be a fairly isolating thing, even when that's what you want to do. And we see that, you know, if you look at campaign issues, it's a mental health issue as well. Like mental health is a men's issue, mm. far more than it is a women's issue. And so those are things that we also need to address, you know, t- to get to gender equity. Mm-hmm. When did you begin noticing that the landscape was not an equal playing field. When you started out in your career, when did those alarm bells start to go off? You know, it's interesting. I am the youngest of six kids. So I saw the economic barriers to women impact my sisters and their children. So things like in my lifetime, women couldn't get a credit card without a male cosigner. They couldn't get a bank loan without a male cosigner. They couldn't get housing without a male cosigner. Those were laws that were all in effect 
in my lifetime. So I watched that impact my sisters. And I remember at a really young age thinking, I'm never doing that. I think I was like five. And then, and then when I got into the, you know, I, st- I was a poli sci major. So you study a lot of women's rights, you know, far beyond just the suffrage movement. And di- I did a lot of work. And then at some point early in my career, I thought, I don't just don't know if this is all that applicable to the workplace anymore. I just don't see it. And so I kind of switched from building my career. And I certainly had instances where, you know, I was called aggressive, uh, Katika's intimidating. I don't know, you know, those very kind of typical things Mm -hmm. that we say to women. But the key, the thing that happened to me that was this wake up moment was when I was on maternity leave with my daughter, my boss was fired or she was optimized, which is a fancy word for fired. And I, uh, I had a team that I was managing. When I got back, I now had two teams that I was, they asked me to manage another team the day after I got back. And then two weeks later asked me to manage a third team, which is great. Like perfect time to have that opportunity. New mom, breadwinner mom, et cetera. And, but they didn't offer me any additional pay. And my male colleague was a pay grade higher than I was. And he also received additional compensation for that new team. And people say, well, how did you know? And I said, well, I asked him because I assumed that they were paying him more. I just went and said, hey, what are they giving you for that extra team? Mm. And, he, and he told me. And so I went to my new manager in HR and said, well, this, I'm very excited about this opportunity. How do you want to make me whole on my pay so that mm. it's equitable? And there was nothing. And this is where my background as a poli-sci major and a, a, a paralegal helped me because I was really good at legal research. Mm. And I thought, that this has got to be illegal. Like, this has got to, this cannot be legal. So I found the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, mm. called HR, and said, this is a Lily Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? And... <laughs> They were like, oh, okay. (laughs) So to their credit, (laughs) they increased my pay, increased my level and gave me back pay. And that was really, anyway, that was really the first moment that I realized it was inequitable. Which is incredible. And I just want to like slow clap you over here. But the thing that it makes me think about is what about the women who don't know that? What about the women who haven't been trained as paralegals, who, who don't have access to that kind of information, who are in essence being shrunk in their positions because they don't know that they can advocate in this way. It it, it makes me crazy. And, and I would like if, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell people at home listening more about the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, how it works, what it really means, how they might Mm -hmm. do some research on it and figure out what their standing is in their own job? Sure. Yes. And I will also address the other issue that you talked about, the why, you know, it was essentially why did, why did I have to speak up? Right. Mm. I mean, that, that's I think that's another uh, piece. But the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was actually the first pay- piece of legislation that President Obama signed into law in January of 20, 2009. And what it did was change the statute of limitations for equal pay. So it used to be that the statute of limitations for equal pay started when the equal pay began, right? So the issue with that is that if you don't know you're being paid equitably, how can you really address that within the statute of limitations, Mm -hmm. right? Then this, what Lily Ledbetter was a Goodyear employee who got a, essentially the backstory, got a tip off that she was earning substantially less than her male colleagues, tried to sue, 
Um, and because of the statute of limitations, uh, was essentially blocked from mm. bringing her case. And so what it did was move it from the time at which the uh, inequitable pay started to the time it was paid. Mm. So essentially, it starts over with every single paycheck. Amazing. And that, yeah, that is a huge difference, which is obviously what I used. I think to the other piece around you know, what do women do? I, I think this is actually the problem with our system. And by the way, it's why I create, founded the company that I founded, mm -hmm. because we still put it on. We have an equal pay law. It was signed into law by President Kennedy in 1963. And still in the last 10 years, we've actually moved backward in equal pay in aggregate. And so we actually we still put it on the backs of women and people who are not paid equitably mm -hmm. to bring a case. And the power, like one, that's not an equitable system. And two, generally they're not the people that are in power, right? Mm -hmm. They are not the people that are making those decisions. And, and generally so more, when yeah. you're not the one in power, you get nervous to make waves. You don't want to lose your job because to your point, we're paying women now in 2020 less than we were paying them in 2010. But do you want to make less money or no money? It's a real conundrum for that's people exactly and right. it's scary. And that's, ex that's exactly right is that we are basically putting it on women to put their economic security on the line in order to receive equitable pay. That's madness. It is. Now, Virginia just became the 38th state to ratify the ERA. Mm -hmm. Can you walk our listeners through what the differences mean? Because there is, to your point about Kennedy having signed the equal pay law, People assume that this is the law. They assume it's the law of the land. They assume there are federal protections. 86% of people surveyed believe that it's illegal to pay men and women differently, but men and women are paid differently in every industry in the country. So yeah. can you can you explain to people how that happens and, and what the difference is and, and what the ERA being ratified might mean for Means. us? Mm -hmm. means a long Supreme Court battle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to overturn a Supreme Court case that essentially said that you could put a time limit on constitutional amendments. That That is, will be probably the next thing that comes up. And mm -hmm. I actually think the lawsuit has been filed in a federal court because there was a, a statute of limitations, not a statute of limitations, but a time uh, expiration on the ERA. So, uh, and actually, in 97% of professions, there is a gender pay gap. So it's in almost all uh, professions. The, uh, the ERA, essentially, uh, women are not fundamentally equal citizens under the law in the United States. We don't have constitutional protections, mm -hmm. not by gender or by sex is how, how the ERA. And so what the ERA means in terms of equity is that every single, not piece by piece. So you talk about the equal pay law, you talk about the Lily, the better fair pay act. You talk about the civil rights act of 1964, which created the EEOC, all those different pieces. They're like little picks at you know, they're, they're little divots, if you will, into equality. Mm. But what the ERA would fundamentally do is say that every single, it is illegal in every single statute in the United States mm. for there to be any sex discrimination. Mm. So you're not chipping at it little by little. You are essentially saying everywhere it must be equitable. And that is, that is huge. And, and huge. it is, it is also, 
not only an issue of fairness, it is, I know I say this a lot, but it is truly, I mean, you look at it and 40% of households with uh, with uh, children in the U.S., women are the breadwinners. Mm-hmm. 71% of households with children, women work and they're part of the economic well-being. This is fundamentally about economic um, justice, really, uh, more than, the, I mean, you look at, um, I, I talked about this in a more recent Fast Company article about the gender jail gap, right? So women, mm-hmm. um, you talk about criminal justice and uh, cash bail, women are more likely to be held, uh, um, less likely to be able to pay for bails. And 80% of them are moms. They're separated mm-hmm. from their children within this country. They're citizens of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so that that all of that has a tremendous you know, impact on our economy. Absolutely. And I think some of those numbers are really important. You reference in in that piece that in 1983, women represented 9% of jail admissions in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And by 2016, that share has jumped to 23%. So mm-hmm. this idea that women are becoming more of a threat to civil society really interests me. You know, you saw in the midterms, we elected over 100 women to Congress which still doesn't create parity of representation per population, but it was a big deal. And immediately after 100 women were elected to Congress, we saw the GOP try to pass the most aggressive rollbacks of women's reproductive rights. And that doesn't just mean the abortion issue. That means even access to birth control and health care. Because there is a real backlash to us gaining equal footing And I think talking about how the gender pay gap influences bail in this instance is really important because most of these women, per the data, are incarcerated due to nonviolent offenses. They have not been convicted of a crime, Mm -hmm. but because they can't afford cash bail, they're being forced to be separated from their families until they have a day in court. Right. Which is horrendous. And you can be held. It's not like three months. You can be held for years. Mm hmm. Like this is, it's, it's unknown. And so you have children that go into a foster system. Mm-hmm. You have people who are, people are less likely to vote mm-hmm. when they are, have been in the criminal justice system. Um, you have uh, children who are tremendously impacted by being mm-hmm. separated from their parents. Mm-hmm. It's a, a huge, it's simply because they can't afford bail. That's it. That's why it, it, it's, it's, it, it, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. It's a horrendous system, which again creates we disadvantage people who don't have money to pay for it or yes. access to money to. Pay I mean, for it, it creates a horrendous. It's a horrendous example of classism. Harvey Weinstein oh, yeah. could pay a million dollars in bail and go home to his fancy house, but a working mom who potentially has not even committed a crime, who might very quickly be found not guilty once she gets to go to trial has to sit in a jail cell until said trial. That's right. I, I want to I talk on, on sort of the other end. You know, we're talking criminal justice, but as we've been referencing higher education and, and, you know, women in the workforce, you wrote as well about the fact that we assume higher education is a great equalizer, and in fact it isn't, because the wage gap makes it harder for women to pay back their loans than men. Yes. And they take out more loans than men because of the wage gap. That is, they earn less when they're in college. Hmm. So it starts, so they have to take more out and then they are less able to pay their student loans back. So the student loan issue is actually a gender equity issue because while women are 57% of all student, of all 
college graduates, so bachelor's mm-hmm. degree and higher, they hold 67% of all student loan debt. So that issue, mm-hmm. you know, when we hear it on the campaign trail, that is also about gender equity mm-hmm. because it's not, to your point, only about less money coming into women's wallets. It's actually about more money coming out, mm-hmm. right? So we have 20% less coming into our wallets and then we've got 10% more going out. So you start to start to carve that out, right? Mm-hmm. And now, you know, essentially, if you actually did the gender wage gap based on the pink tax, student loan debt, and the wage gap, you would actually find that we probably earn somewhere near 50% of what men do, just wow. in terms of discretionary income. Of course. Wow, that's fascinating because the stats are horrible. I mean, we talked about the fact that the gender pay gap has widened in the last 10 years, since 2010. Right. And- Women earn 80 cents for every dollar their male counterparts are earning. And that's an average, obviously, across the U.S. for women. For women of color, it's far worse. The pay gap is larger. Latinas, for example, earn 53% on the dollar. And more than half of Latina mothers, uh, cited from your article, are, are the breadwinners in their family. And to put it in perspective, to your point about what that means as far as the numbers over a lifetime, 53 cents on the dollar means over a million dollars in lost wages over the course of a Latina's full-time 40-year career. Now, when we begin to think about, to your point, how much more the loans cost, how many more years of interest you're paying, how how much longer it takes to pay those things off, that million dollars becomes a million and a half. That million dollars Mm -hmm. becomes maybe two. We we don't know. Mm -hmm. That's that's something that I hope for everyone listening at home, whether you're a man or a woman gets you fired up because if if that woman is your sister or your friend, you should be upset for her. If that woman is your partner, you should also be upset for yourself because guess what? That's your household that's earning that much less money. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we need to personalize these issues and realize that these fights belong to all of us. And I, mm-hmm. I do hope per your point that when people see candidates out there campaigning, they really take the time, regardless of, you know, partisan garbage out there, regardless of which news channel you watch that encourages you to, you know, hate somebody for whatever reason. I really hope that people are listening to what the candidates are saying on these subjects, because Mm -hmm. no matter what party they're a part of, you know, even if it surprises you, I would hope that people would vote for the folks out there who want to change these systems, who want to change yeah. student loan debt, who want to change parity in the workplace, because it it does affect all of us. It holds all of us back, male, female. It's it's really, really important. And And then obviously, you know, things get even more complex when we get outside of sex and we get into race and we get into the LGBTQ a community and it 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 really matters that we are looking at this as you're explaining it in this holistic interconnected way Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And intersectionality is also something that is uh, 
uh, been talked about more in the last decade, mm-hmm. which is uh, really good. I'll, I have two, actually, I have two reports that I haven't released, but they will be released Ooh. soon. One is actually um, a 2020 retrospective, which is gender equity over the last 10 years. And intersectionality is one of them that has become a lot more important. So, mm-hmm. understanding gender plus age, gender plus race and ethnicity, gender plus sexual orientation, mm-hmm. um, because typically, women uh, women plus another diverse class like race and ethnicity, those women tend to be farther behind. So we need to understand what that impact is and mm-hmm. solve for it. And then also from a voting perspective, I wrote an article for Fast Company and then I have another report that's coming out that's a long form report because obviously articles are a little bit shorter, which was about gender mainstreaming. And so my the article looked at, I think, five issues, but the l- longer form report will be 15 and how you can look at candidates' platforms to see how they're committing to gender equity and how you lens essentially all those different issues from healthcare to immigration to import taxes, et cetera, through the lens of gender and how you can actually vote for that in the 2020 election and what what is sitting on the other side, side for us, which is $2 trillion in increased GDP in the U.S. Wow. Um, if we vote for candidates who commit to gender equity and and lensing gender in every single policy. That's huge. I can't wait to look at that stuff. Thank you in advance for <laughs> what you're about to, to you put in the world. You, you mentioned something as we were kind of going through all of this, how many factors add up for us and, you know, we earn less and then we have more going out. And you, and you said something about the pink tax, which I think is the most insane thing that women's products cost 7% more than so-called men's products at least 50% of the time. And right. you can watch videos on this, guys. You know, you, you, can, you can Google information about the pink tax. One that I saw that did such a good job of explaining it showed how at the dry cleaner, a men's shirt costs, let's say, $5, and, a, and the women's shirt to dry clean costs six fifty. And you go down every single line item and it's more for us which infuriates me also because I'm like my shirt my my dress shirt that I would wear under a suit is a lot smaller than my dad's dress shirt that he wears under his suit I'm very pissed about this but you know that our razors cost more that that all of our products are more shaving cream everything are more expensive what do we do about this aside from buying men's razors (laughs) Well, I do that. But, the same. But but wherever I can, because I'm like, it's cheaper. But there are actually two things we can do about it. The pink tax overall, there has been some movement in Congress, particularly with this change in representation, though we're still far from equitably represented in the halls of Congress, around having a consumer rights, essentially, mm-hmm. um, act passed, whereby you can't charge, uh, making it illegal to charge more for women's products than men's products. So that's a consumer protection piece, the, which is sort of overall for the pink tax. The second piece of it, which is a subset, you know, a part of the pink tax, is our import taxes. Mm. So on average, and this mostly comes into play for footwear and apparel. Mm. So the... The majority, I think it's 75% 
of the, and I'm, I'm doing this from memory, but about 75% of the uh, import tax burden that U.S. households bear is for, uh, in, is for footwear and apparel, right? And most footwear and apparel is not made here in the United States, right? It's made mm-hmm. in Asia, it's made in Southeast Asia, and I think it's 69%, but again, I'd have to go look at the numbers. But anyway, the majority of that is actually borne by women, uh, so women actually pay more of the import taxes. So mm. on average for the average import tax for men's items is 11.9%. That is essentially the tax that's added over the cost of the item once it's imported into the United States. Mm-hmm. And for women's, it's 15.1%. And men sometimes pay more, but women typically pay more than men. And so... So this is, and this we can fix. We can just lobby Congress to, the reason why it exists is that in the, the um, code, in, the, tar- in the, tax, the tariff code, there are statistical categories how you essentially calculate what tariff is assigned to each item. And for footwear and apparel, uh, gender is part of that statistical category. So we can do one of two things. The first thing is we can just remove gender from the code. So there's no difference. Shoes or shoes. Right. Shoes or shoes. Or we can lobby Congress to use the lower code, one or the other. That's wild. When (laughs) when we talk about making change in government, Iceland comes to mind for me because, Mm -hmm. you know, they're famous for having had every woman in the country walk out of work, every single one, and then bam, (laughs) They had equal pay. They had a whole new model because the leaders realized that the women were serious. And now Iceland is on lists about one of the greatest places to work and to work for mm-hmm. women. Yeah. Can, can you explain how their model for equal pay works and how we can try to pass true equal pay legislation? Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the conversation we were having before, mm-hmm. which is that essentially what Iceland did, and it went into effect on January 1st of 2018, is they shifted the burden from employees, so in, in this case mostly women, but employees to bring a case that they weren't paying pay, being paid equitably mm. to the employer. Employers must actually prove now that they are paying equitably. And if they don't, they face a fine. Mm. And, and what's interesting is we have sort of skirted some of this issue in the U.S. We've kind of come up right to it. So Kamala Harris, when she was in the presidential election, she talked about uh, shifting to shifting the burden of proof to employers and, fi- you know, uh, fining them in the in I interviewed four of the presidential candidates um, and they also committed uh, to that as well as did um they did in a recent, I think, Fortune article as well. But that, we've done that. The other thing that we have done, which was a a legacy from President Obama, was we actually, for the first time ever in 2019, September 30th, 2019, uh, companies with 100 employees or more in the United States actually reported pay by gender to the EEOC. Mm. They added another component the issue was they didn't release the data, the pattern data, which they've always done for their demographic data, and they said that they weren't going to collect it again. So you're saying that they release other data that they collect, mm-hmm. but they weren't releasing data on pay and gender. 
That's right. So the EEOC was created in as part of uh, it was essentially part of Title Seven of the 19- Civil Rights Act of 1964. They started collecting that information, I believe, in 1965 and releasing the pattern data. They don't mm-hmm. release it to an employer like the UK would, but they release the pattern data. So there is precedent for them to release that data. They chose, however, not to release that pattern data. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Mm. I was on NPR that morning talking about it mm. and talking about the economics economic importance, to your point, about the $512 billion that's sitting on the table for us if we actually shift the burden of proof from women in particular and mm-hmm. people of color to um, employers. So what can people listening at home, both men and women in our audience and people who identify as neither, what can we all do to help push the gap shut? That's a good question. And I, we didn't talk about pipeline, so I'll talk oh, about we will. that in a second. Is, uh, okay. You know, I think the, the things that they can do is, and we have an equity for all report, which people can get on our website. But I, you know, I think to really begin to shift the conversation from one uh, of an issue uh, as an issue of fairness, but actually as an issue of economic opportunity. Yes, we've done a fairly good job in our equity for all report. There's other resources as well. But um, to lens that and talk about that. Mm. That's one. They can contact their representatives in Congress, their senators, their um, rep in the House to advocate, you know, think for things like the Fair, uh, Paycheck Fairness Act. There's other pieces that they they can do. They can lobby companies. I mean, one of the great equalizers today is social media. Mm. We can use social media to catalyze toward action. I mean, that's fundamentally Me Too, right? That is what Me Too was about, was catalyzed. So we can use social media to catalyze toward action. Those are really specific things that uh, we can we can do. In, in mm-hmm. addition to, if you're in a company, most companies now have women's employee resource groups or something that they're doing in terms of that. And to really begin to bring up the issue of not just sponsorship, not just some of the things that are kind of typically brought up, but how are we actually moving the needle through the decisions that we're making? Because how we do that is how we will actually make change. It's not just about a woman having a sponsor. It's how many women did you actually promote? How Mm -hmm. many women are actually in your succession plan to be the CEO or to be the next chief revenue officer or to be the the next COO of Mm. your organization? Um, How are you actually ensuring that there isn't bias in your performance reviews so that women actually end up being, you know, because of that, they end up being underrated and then they're not put in your succession plan and they're not paid equitably. It's all those Decisions and actually in the Fortune 500, which most you know, uh, uh, there's uh, 30 million employees um, in the Fortune 500, and you know, so you're talking about millions of decisions that we can actually change every year. So really, employees advocating for real change through the decisions that are actually being made, mm-hmm. not through things that sort of make us feel good, make us feel like we're making change, but we're not actually making change, and that's why. In the last 10 years, the gender pay gap having gotten bigger, despite the fact that we talk about women having sponsors, we talk about, I don't know, teaching women to negotiate, which is Mm -hmm. another false narrative, but uh, because women do negotiate as much as men, etc. But we need to shift the conversation off of women being a charity case to essentially ensuring that the system itself is equitable and 
and people on the ground need to advocate for those decisions being equitable. Yes. Now I want to talk about pipeline because you've built something to help with this. And and before we get into it, because pipeline is a SaaS platform. It uses data science as its foundation. In, in the worlds of tech, people throw SaaS around a lot. Can you tell listeners at home who are like, what the frick is a SaaS platform? Tell us what that <laughs> is wow. first, and yeah. then let's okay. get into what Pipeline does. Yeah, sure. So SaaS is just, it's another, it's a fancy word for cloud. Cloud is just another, it's essentially where the servers live. That's a, basically like all data is, is um, stored on a server. It used to be uh, that it was sort like, let me give you an example, like DaVita here in, in, in Denver. They would have their own servers store their own data on their own servers. Mm-hmm. So about 20 years ago, that uh, there was a big move and still is, is continuing to move data from your native servers into the cloud, which is essentially shared servers. Mm-hmm. So why that matters is you can actually then access that data. You can lay additional platforms off of it and... And make change. Hmm. So that is just essentially where the data lives. That's an oversimplification. But for non-tech people, it's where the data lives. The data living in the cloud makes it more accessible. Making it more accessible means you can put additional software against it. Putting additional software against it means that you can have new solutions. Love it. (laughs) So pipeline. (laughs) Pipeline. So the idea behind pipeline, so I talked a little bit about my experience fighting for equitable pay. I fought another time. I won both times. And I was on a radio. And when I fought after the, after the first time I fought for equitable pay, I, my commitment, what, so Mika Brzezinski's book, Know Your Value actually came out right after that, the first time I fought to be paid, fought to be paid equitably. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. And then I'd Mm. inherited two teams and I saw all the pay inequities in those teams. And so my commitment was, if you reported to me, I was going to do everything in my power to ensure you were paid equitably. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, and then I was on a radio show for game changing women and the topic was negotiation and pay. And much of my corporate experience is actually reporting up through sales. So it's reporting up through the revenue part of the business. And the host asked us if we ever thought the pay gap would be closed in our lifetime. And I said, well, not until we make it an economic issue. And then I thought, oh, I think I can solve that. So that was really where the idea for Pipeline came from, which was turning this idea from kind of the right thing to do to the smart thing to do. And how how do you actually make that visible to people in an organization? Mm -hmm. So the first thing we did was a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in gender equity, there's a one to 2% increase in revenue. Mm -hmm. So if as a... CEO, you're the fiduciary of your company, you're responsible for essentially maximizing the return to your shareholders, this is a really key lever that you can pull Mm. in order to do that. So what Pipeline does, so we talked about my, you know, me fighting to be paid equitably, and what do other women do if they're not paralegals? You know, even though my story is one of success in terms of fighting be paid equitably and winning, there is the question of why did I have to research my rights in order to be treated fairly, mm-hmm. right? If we shift the burden off of employees to employers, 
that that makes a really that makes a difference. So what that's what essentially what pipeline does. We intercept, we're a recommendations engine, we're augmented decision making. So kind of like if you use Waze or you use Google Maps to get somewhere, mm-hmm. we're like we're like that but for your company and for equitable decision making within your company. And there are five key decisions in the corporate world that uh, companies make across their talent, which is hiring, pay, performance, potential, and promotion. Mm -hmm. Um, It's essentially like who gets into a company, how much do they get paid, how much opportunity do they have? And so we intercept those decisions and make recommendations and then track it over time. Very cool. So we make it, we make gender equity possible through the decisions that companies are already making. One just really quick example to try and make it maybe a little bit more tangible for people is that in corporations, there's essentially three decisions you make across your talent every year, which is performance, potential, and pay. So if you think about the Fortune 500, they have 30 million employees in the Fortune 500. Mm -hmm. That's 90 million opportunities for for the Fortune 500 companies to move toward gender equity every single year. That's what's possible with the pipeline platform. And to your point, if out there in the workforce we become equitable, profit margins go up. There's not a limit. There's no finite bucket of economy. We can actually grow the U.S. economy for all people if we create parity. That's right. For everyone. It is fundamentally about economic, when you grow a company, I mean, just look at like a Salesforce as an example, but Mm -hmm. you know, when you, when companies are growing, people get more opportunity, they earn more money, there's Mm -hmm. more opportunity within the ecosystem. That's what you can create. That's what we can create as a collective. So for folks listening who might be a manager at their job, how would you recommend they take action to make sure they're not accidentally falling into any of these biased patterns? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one way, I mean, quite simply, you could implement pipeline. Yeah, I right? was going to say, mean, that's what right. you built. I mean, that's, I, yeah, anyway, uh, that that's one. I think that doing an audit of the decisions that you're making is really important. So who, what do your performance ratings look like? What does your succession plan look like? So who's in line to replace you? How diverse is that group? Who's going to be promoted? Um, how are they paid? Those are different audits that you can step back and look and see what you can do. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is maybe a little bit more uh, happens every day is this idea of amplifying women's voices in uh, meetings. So mm-hmm. uh, making sure that there's equitable airtime when you have meetings, because what the data shows is that uh, men are more typically talk more in meetings than women. Mm-hmm. So ensuring that women are have equitable airtime, that women are not being interrupted, that there is a strategy in place to combat that ahead of time, um, making sure that all of your meetings have both women and men in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are there ways that you can solve for that? And to your point about the time, the opportunity to speak, you know, it's it's really important to be not just conscious of it, but to actually implement a plan. You know, in in your article, you reference, uh, you know, the, the article about the issue of uh, a gender gap in media, you reference that in the early stages of the debates, the presidential debates, um, there was one in which Elizabeth Warren was asked four questions and... A lot of other candidates were only asked two, but 
that the men on stage interrupted her 70% of the time that she was talking. So she didn't actually get to answer four questions. And you saw back in 2016, after a debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, he went ballistic in the press about how Hillary had used up all of his time and they'd given her more time to talk when in fact the clock came out, the, the, the numbers of timing, and he'd spoken for 51 minutes and she'd spoken for 49. So he had still dominated the conversation, but to him, getting close to parity in time and attention to him felt as though he was having all of his time stolen. And I think that's a really important thing to highlight for men, not to say in any way, shape or form that all men behave like Donald Trump, but that when you are used to dominating the conversation, when the conversation becomes equitable, it can feel as though you're losing. But in fact, you're not because again, when things become more equitable, everyone takes more money home. So... That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and this is why also it's important to talk about gender equity as 50% men and 50% women, Mm -hmm. because um, that gender inequity impacts men too, because Mm -hmm. um, otherwise men feel like it's invasion, not inclusion. Yes. Which is exactly what you're talking about. Oh my gosh, it's equitable. Now I have more time taken away from me, right? So that, that makes a difference in terms of in terms of understanding what that feels like. Yes, it's really important. I know you mentioned that you have some kind of retrospectives and data about the last decade coming out now that we're in 2020, and it's a big year with the election and all things coming toward us. What are what are your hopes? What are your 2020 hopes? My 2020 hopes... Oh, that's a good question. My 2020 hopes more immediately because it's a presidential election is that, you know, in 2018, we closed the gap in the halls of Congress by four points. So we went from women being 20% of Congress mm. to women being 24% of Congress. Mm. And that, but however, women are 51% of the population. So we have 27 points left to go. Mm. So my hope is that people don't stop, that they, catal- they, they take that momentum and continue to move it forward. And every year we're getting at least four more points of representation in Congress, right? Mm-hmm. So that it won't be at the end of this decade, but pretty early in the next decade that we can actually have parity in Congress. That's mm-hmm. one. And that matters in terms of how laws are written, how, they're, how our lived experience is actually in those laws. Because mm-hmm. when we assume that the system is not biased, uh, we essentially bake our biases into the system, right? Yes. Just look at the cash bail system. That's a perfect example. So that's one. The other is that we have the opportunity to close the gap in girls' education. Education, not just in the U.S., but globally. Mm -hmm. Education is the foundation of all economic opportunity for countries. Every additional year of education, there's a 10% increase in GDP. That is within our sights in 12 years if we work really hard for it. It's also connected to the U.N. goals. Mm -hmm. That's um, something else that I would like to see. And then the third, I mean, there's a lot of things I would like to see, but I'll just add Mm -hmm. one more. Yeah. So the last thing that I will say is that I would like to see in the next decade that at the very least, the Equality Act is passed and LGBTQ citizens have protections 
across the United States because in 26 states in the U.S. you can be fired because of who you are or who you love. That mm-hmm. should be illegal. I would also like to, to see that's a good start because it amends and it um, adds uh, sexual orientation uh, and sexual identity to Title Seven, mm-hmm. but that's not an ending. I would also like to see a constitutional amendment protecting that. Here, here, I'm on board for all of that. The day that this is airing, March 31st, is quite important because it symbolizes how far into the year women have had to work to earn what men earned in the previous year. The statistic kind of speaks for itself. It's, it's hard to know what question to ask about it because the questions that come to mind for me are inappropriate and slightly rage-filled. But, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here like, what the fuck? Are you kidding? Yeah. Anger into action is a good catalyst. Anger yeah. into action. I like that. I like that a lot. When we, when we qualify or I suppose quantify the reality of the pay gap in that way and we think about our goals for 2020, what can, what can we all do? You know, you mentioned you've, you've educated us a lot on the ERA and what's currently at stake. Would you suggest that every woman who might be angry about the fact that only today has she potentially earned what men earned last year. Would you encourage all of us to call our congresspeople and our senators to demand that these laws are enacted? What What do you think? What do you think we can do that that anger into action? Yes, <laughs> I do. Great. I think I think we. I believe that the four things that we should catalyze toward action. Uh, one is the Fair Ch- P- uh, Paycheck Fairness Act. It doesn't do enough, but it's a start. Mm. Um, the Equality Act, for sure, um, because of intersectionality. We need to also the ERA and um, changing the time expiration on the ERA. Mm-hmm. And then the third is a true equal pay law that mm-hmm. shifts the burden of proof for equal pay from uh, women and employees to uh, companies. And I think it's interesting, you know, even being a poli sci, I mean, I I, I did action, but I was never at a rally, but I did go to the, uh, to Washington DC for the first women's March. I think about for equal payday, what if we did, what if we did something like that? And we had four very clear demands and we Mm. catalyzed people toward action that those four things they must they must do, and we must also talk to the presidential candidates about equal pay. Yes. That, that this is fundamentally an economic issue, and here are the four things that we expect. And by the way, women are the majority of all voters in the United yes. States. Yes. Um, we should we start vote voting like have, it. <laughs> we sh- well, we should start voting like it, but we should also demand action. Mm-hmm. And, and on equal pay day, we should, dem- we should make the... I mean, what if we had a march for equal pay? What if... On this equal pay day, on March 31st, we did what Iceland did. And we demanded, e- well, what the women in Iceland did, and we, we demanded equal pay. That is possible. I'm in. You tell me where to be. Let's go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to start a, ra- a march across the U.S., and, and those four pieces must be passed. Great. I love that plan. I have one final question for you, and it is my favorite thing to ask everyone. The, the pod is called Work in Progress. 
And when you hear the phrase, what comes to mind for you as a work in progress in your life right now? Oh, I love that. I love that, by the way. I love the name and the whole Thank you. idea that you are enough and you're a work in progress, mm-hmm. that they are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I think um, the work in progress for me, especially three years into Pipeline, it's very different than it was when I first started Pipeline, mm-hmm. is really the... I thought I talked about a little bit, but the willingness to jump and the ledge will appear, like the willingness to be vulnerable and to make mistakes and to walk through fear without the guarantee that you will be successful, but with the belief that even if you're not successful, that has nothing to do with your worth. And I think my experience has been that when I'm willing to do that, which is a a lot of my life, but when I'm willing to do that and what I often call be brave, like when I am willing to be brave, Mm. the, the changes that we can make from understanding that we are a work in progress, the voices that we can use, the, the impact that we can have is far beyond anything that we could have ever imagined that is, that is possible. And if we do that, I mean, from my perspective, quite frankly, gender equity is within our grasp if we are willing to jump and the ledge will appear. If we are willing to use our voices, it is Mm. possible. Yes. (laughs) All of the yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for today. This has been informative and inspiring. And I, I just, I feel so fired up and I'm sure that everybody at home does too. And I can't wait to see the next reports. Just thank you for everything you do. Well, likewise. And thank you. Thank you for raising voices and using your platform. I, I'm so grateful. Thanks. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud 10 and Brilliant Anatomy. Powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.